zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film released at the 1980s in chronological order overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing The Fox and the Hound, released July 10th, 1981. It was written by Larry Clemens, Ted Berman, David Meichner, Peter Young, Bernie Mattinson, Steve Hewlett, Earl Kress, and Vance Jerry, based on a book by Daniel P. Mannix, and directed by Ted Berman and Richard Rich and Art Stevens, featuring earlier clips directed by David Hand, and Wolfgang Reitherman, and released by Buena Vista, a.k.a. Disney. In 1967, Daniel P. Mannix's The Fox and the Hound was released as a novel, and the same year it won the Dutton Animal Book Award and caught the attention of Walt Disney Pictures. Disney bought the film rights then, but production didn't begin on their adaptation for another decade. Even though the book was called The Fox and the Hound, the working title pluralized Hounds. Original director Wolfgang Wooly Reitherman one of Disney's nine old men, had read the novel and, as a pet fox owner, thought it was a good fit for the studio. He even brought his son's fox to the studio as an animation reference. As is the case with many Disney films, The Fox and the Hound started with two directors, the established Reitherman and newcomer Art Stevens, but they quickly clashed over key story elements. Co-producer Ron Miller sided with the younger director and asked for Reitherman's resignation, but he was reluctant to surrender control to younger animators. In the book, the character of Chief is actually killed, but Chief is also the younger dog in the book. But I'll go over all that at the end. Suffice to say that if you thought this movie was sad, you should read the book. (laughs) (laughs) But the decision was made early in production that Chief would survive, being struck by the train, until animator Ron Clements insisted that Chief's death was important to the arcs of the surviving characters. Ultimately, Clements and the majority of the story team were overruled by director Stevens when the studio sided with the director. I actually completely agree with that. With Clements? Yes. I agree. But the same thing happened on Lady and the Tramp because Trusty was supposed to die. Oh, Lady was supposed to die. Yeah, Lady was supposed to get hit by a train out of nowhere. (laughs) But especially this one. I guess we can talk about it later when we get there. But I I, I think they made a mistake in this one. Yeah. Another big fight involved an ill-fitting musical number featuring a pair of swooping cranes voiced by Phil Harris and Charo teaching Todd how to survive in the wild. When Stevens succeeded in removing the song, his former co-director Reitherman gave up and left the project, confessing, I don't know, Art, maybe this is a young man's medium. The film was originally set for a Christmas 1980 release, but the sudden departure of Don Bluth and 15 prominent animators caused significant delays. Producer Ron Miller ordered the resigned animators off the lot by noon, and a memorable scene in the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty amusingly depicts the jobless animators all hopping in the bed of Don Bluth's pickup. (laughs) Former director Reitherman and animators Ollie Johnson and Frank Thomas's work on the film represented the last contribution of the nine old men to a major Disney release, but the mass resignation forced a mass promotion of new animators. As a result, there was a sea change happening at the studio, and this new class of creatives were finally making their mark. In early 1979, 
animation duties were handed over to the new generation of Disney animators, including future Pixar head John Lasseter, Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and Moana directors John Musker and Ron Clements, animator and Ariel-slash-Rapunzel designer Glenn Keane, writer-director Tim Burton, Incredibles Ratatouille director Brad Bird, Nightmare Before Christmas Coraline director Henry Selleck, Tarzan Frozen director Chris Buck, Rescuers Down Under Pocahontas director Mike Gabriel, and Emperor's New Groove director Mark Dindle, all of whom had a hand in this film's final animation. Apparently, along with The Black Cauldron, this is one of two Disney animated films for the entire decade not to feature the voice of Frank Welker. Hmm. Completed, it was Disney's most expensive animated feature to date, with a price tag of $13 million, but including re-releases, it would go on to collect $63 million at the box office, and it ranked 12th in the year's highest grossing films. That's weird. Yeah. Like, aesthetically, I don't see this one being significantly more expensive than anything else that they've made thus I think far. it was just because of throwing things out and starting over and ah, maybe. A, a very expensive development process. In 2006, the film was followed with a direct-to-video sequel, and I'll discuss the plot of that at the end. I can't wait. <laughs> the film opens in foggy farmland, which we learn canonically from the direct-to-video sequel is on the outskirts of Tennessee, mere hours from the Grand Ole Opry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the music creeps in with an air of foreboding, not Grand Ole Opry music. <laughs> the score to the film. I was thinking of like Coal Miner's Daughter is yeah. like slowly playing in the background. You can hear Loretta Lynn. The camera pushes through a spider web and lands on a clearing where a mother fox is desperately racing to keep her baby away from fast approaching hound dogs. Well, so this movie starts completely silent. Right. And and I when I say it starts completely silent, I just mean like the logos and everything. It's like starts moving through the woods and there's no sound i thought it was broken yeah <laughs> I, I, I was like turning the volume up had i even had headphones on and i was turning the volume up it's like i don't i don't hear anything am i supposed to hear, i should hear something don't these all these movies and then open. a deafening shotgun blast well because all these movies always open with with some kind music of music yeah. and, and 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 well there is some music as she's running with the baby though. but even the buena vista logo has music right generally yeah. like it, it's just everything is just completely quiet yeah the mother fox comes to the edge of a farm where the dog's incessant barking wakes a nearby owl we will come to know as big mama the fox leaves her baby under a patch of grass by a fence post and then leads the hunting dogs away over a hill before a shotgun rings out big mama sees all this happen and flies down to check on the fox pup which I guess are called kits. Mm-hmm. Sounds right. Mama starts putting together a plan to find a caretaker for the fox we will come to know as Todd. Todd seems to have already chosen a new mom. Oh, no, 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 no. Not me, not big mama now. Now, I'm thinking, though. <laughs> I, I, her, her entire way of speaking for her character is yeah. just the most the enduring thing. Like, I was like, <laughs> I, my notice, I already love big mama. <laughs> Her thoughts are interrupted by the hammering of a nearby woodpecker named Boomer. Boomer and his pal Dinky are digging away at the bark of a tree in the hopes of eating Squeaks, the caterpillar within. Dinky decides that Widow Tweed, whose farm they live adjacent to, would take great care of the little guy. Dinky orders a plan in motion with the first of several amusing OK Boomers of the film. <laughs> OK, Boomer, now you know what to do. It made me laugh every time. Yeah. <laughs> Boomer knocks on Widow Tweed's door with his beak to lure her out of the house, where she spots Big Mama and Dinky carrying away her laundry to drape over the fox in the yard. Luckily, she doesn't run over and, like, step on it to keep it away from the birds and just murder this fox. 
She quickly notices the baby fox and it's clearly love at first sight. She calls him Todd since he's such a toddler. The novel doesn't offer an explanation for the name, but it's likely a reference to Todd, T-O-D-D-E, the Middle English word for fox. We cut to a neighboring farm where Amos Slade's jalopy rattles up the driveway. The specific make and model is a 1923 Ford Model T. Slade's dog Chief sleeps leashed to a barrel on its side in the yard. Amos claims that he has a surprise for Chief, but it's not food, it's a hound dog pup. Chief is not impressed. For some reason, the pup is given free reign of the yard while Chief is shackled in place. The pup, who we will eventually call Copper, falls asleep over one of Chief's paws and they settle in for a nice nap together. We cut back to Widow Tweed's barn where she's milking her cow, Abigail. Todd begs for some milk, but continues causing a ruckus, scaring all the chickens and freaking Abigail out enough that Widow Tweed almost gets kicked to death. Her full bucket of milk is knocked over in the process, and Widow Tweed tries to scold the fox for the mess, but she can't stay angry. She tosses Todd out of the barn, and he spots Dinky and Boomer on the hunt for Squeaks the Caterpillar. All of Boomer's distinctive Tigger laughs are giving him away as voice actor Paul Winchell. Yeah. Oh, sure, Dinky. This is the place. I never forget a tree. I never forget a tree. <laughs> they can hear Squeaky inside of the tree and spot him resting on a leaf, snacking on greens within. Boomer is ordered to break through the bark, to retrieve their snack with another okay boomer okay boomer he's right there they manage to pull the caterpillar from the tree but he crawls back inside and todd distracts them enough that boomer accidentally breaks through the other side of the tree and gives squeaks an escape rope boomer breaks through a branch and then falls out of the tree and dinky blames him for letting their food escape todd is distracted by a butterfly and follows it off toward amos slade's farm at the same time Copper catches a whiff of something and wanders away from his post to investigate. Copper finds Todd chasing the butterfly around an old log. Todd asks Copper what he's sniffing around for, but he doesn't know until he gets closer. Why, it's, it's you. <laughs> we were watching this with the kids and Addie just cracked up at that. She liked that sound. <laughs> Copper explains that he's supposed to make that sound when he finds what he's tracking. They start a game of hide-and-seek, and Big Mama watches from above. It seems unfair to play hide-and-seek with a hound dog, but yeah. okay. She sings a song about the unlikely pair. You're not even aware you're such a funny pair. You're the best of friends. That's what I'm going to say anytime I'm ever at a store buying a pair that looks weird. <laughs> <laughs> You're not even aware you're such a funny pair. <laughs> Slade whistles for copper and... <laughs> We're fine, guys. He's literally never bought a pair in his life. It won't happen. I, never, I don't even know if they have pairs at stores. I'm convinced they're just in cartoons. <laughs> it's going to happen, though. You know, you're going to like get up in the morning and, and grab some socks out of your closet. Yeah. And I'm going to be like, stop singing. <laughs> These socks are such a funny pair. Slade whistles for Copper and they part ways for the day. Sometime later, Todd comes to visit Copper at home and Copper chases him back out to the woods. As they tumble around, they confess to being each other's best friends and presumably the events of the direct-to-video sequel take place in the outtakes of this montage because somehow the titular friends are children again in the second film. Copper, you're my very best friend. And you're mine too, Todd. And we'll always be friends forever, won't we? Yeah, forever. How foreboding. They jump into a stream together, and again, Big Mama watches from a branch until they splash her. 
Back at the farm, Slade is annoyed again to find his pup missing and whistles. Copper and Todd make plans to meet again tomorrow, but this time, when Copper gets home, he is leashed to a barrel on Slade's porch with Chief. Todd comes to find him there the next day, and they try to have fun here, but it's too dangerous around the sleeping older dog, Chief. Todd tries to tempt fate by climbing all over the sleeping dog, but eventually Chief wakes up, and Todd barely escapes without getting bit. Chief chases him through a gate into the chicken coop, and Slade sees this and assumes Todd is after his chickens. Slade fires his shotgun repeatedly, but succeeds only in destroying his own mailbox. Well, yeah, he even fires down at the ground, like, by his feet. Yeah. Like, he... Very yeah, unsafe with this gun. He's very unsafe with the gun, and it's going to get more unsafe yeah. as this progresses. Todd notices Widow Tweed taking her milk jugs to market, not a euphemism, and he jumps <laughs> in the back of her horseless carriage for cover. <laughs> Slade follows in his jalopy. But also, <laughs> she also took her milk jugs. Yeah, she also, she had five milk jugs total. Slade follows in his jalopy, waving his shotgun carelessly. He fires a shot through the back of her car, putting a mess of holes through all her milk jugs. Well, th- three, three out of five. <laughs> and that ain't bad. <laughs> That's pretty bad. She pulls her car over and stands in the road to block Slade's path before stealing away his shotgun and turning it on him in frustration. She unloads both barrels into his radiator and then jams the barrel in his ribs. Watch it! That thing's loaded! Now it ain't loaded! (gasps) That wasn't the sound of her shooting him, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But her discharging it into the trees. And then we see Big Mama just fall to the road. What? No! (laughs) No, that didn't happen. That's an American bald eagle. (laughs) Widow Tweed doesn't believe Slade's accusation about Todd chasing the foxes, and he promises to kill Todd the next chance he gets. From then on, Widow Tweed tries to keep Todd as an indoor fox, but he's restless and depressed. One day, Widow Tweed notices Slade is heading out for a long hunting trip till spring. Todd sneaks out a window to offer a goodbye to Copper, but he gets there too late, and the friends are separated again. Copper tries to ride on the front seat, but Chief makes a move to the back till he's a true hunting dog. Big Mama flutters down to Todd and asks why on earth he would come back here after the threats Slade leveled. But Todd insists Chief would never catch him. She gives him a little rhyming spoken word poem to get her point across. Now if you're so foxy and old Chief's so dumb, then why does that hound get the fox on the run? Because he's got the hunter and the hunter's got the gun. Kablam! Elimination! Lack of education! Todd refuses to accept that Copper would go along with a plan that could get him killed, but then Dinky pushes open the door to a shack completely lined in the furs of animals Slade has killed. No doubt including Todd's mother. Oh, God. (laughs) That just occurred to you just now. (laughs) Oh, I did. Yes. That's awful. It's like without warning. You walk in on your friends like hung up in the hunter shack. It's the exact same shack even. (laughs) Despite mounting evidence, Todd insists that Copper and he will be best friends forever and that even when he gets back from the hunting trip, Copper would never do anything to hurt him. The seasons change. Summer becomes fall. Fall becomes winter. Squeaks, Dinky, and Boomer seek shelter from the cold, and Squeaks is able to sneak in through the keyhole to warm up by Widow Tweed's furnace. Dinky and Boomer resign to fly south for the winter. We get a brief glimpse of Copper learning the ways of a hunting dog in the snow. On a cut, Copper ages to adulthood, just in time to lead a chase, racing after a rabbit, but losing his footing on a frozen pond. Further forward in time, Copper's nose is proving quite useful, and he roo roo roos a pack of birds out of a bush, from which Slade is able to shoot some out of the sky. 
When they return to the jalopy for the ride home, Chief is surprised to find Copper in the front seat, but he's a bona fide hunting dog now. Rules is rules. Suddenly, it's spring. Boomer and Dinky return to the farm, and they don't even recognize Todd, who is now speaking with Mickey Rooney's voice, replacing the voice of child actor Keith Coogan. <laughs> oh, it's me, all right. The birds notice Widow Tweed bringing some houseplants out for the spring sunlight, and Squeaks peeks out from behind one. Boomer and Dinky head over to collect their evasive lunch, but the itsy-bitsy caterpillar goes up a water spout. Dinky guards the top, and Boomer guards the bottom, and we get OK Boomer number three. OK, Boomer! We got him trapped! Boomer hammers on the pipe, dizzying Dinky, and Squeaks makes another clean getaway. They notice him sneaking across a power line, and when Boomer tries to hammer his beak through a glass insulator on the line, all three creatures find themselves cartoonishly zapped. I assume this would also take out Widow Tweed's power, but we don't dwell on it. Well, the, the power line is never severed. Right, I just didn't know because it discharges so crazily yeah. that I well, thought it would do some yeah, damage. Yeah, because these are uninsulated wires. Right. Squeaks is literally blinking as he inches away from his predators. We cut to Amos Slade, his dogs, and a huge pile of animal corpses on their way back to the farm. Todd is excited to see Copper back and points it out to Big Mama, and she points to the pile of dead animals they brought. Oh, uh, that won't make any difference. Copper's going to be glad to see me. Later that afternoon, Copper and Chief have a little chat, and Kurt Russell's voice has replaced the voice of child actor Corey Feldman. He's an older dog, but he's still energetic and excitable. A far cry from the voice of Snake Plissken from last week's Escape from New York, released the same day in theaters. Boy, it's great to be back home, isn't it, Chief? Copper challenges Chief to some good old-fashioned scuffling, and Chief feigns disinterest but can't help but laugh when Copper starts wrestling. But a couple of ear nibbles wipe the smile off his face. That night, the dogs are sleeping when Copper hears a rustling nearby. Todd is here to say hi. Copper warns Todd away for his own good. We're still friends, aren't we? Todd, those days are over. I'm a hunting dog now. Todd can't believe his ears. Chief is awoken by the conversation and barks enough to raise Slade, who fires shots at the retreating fox. It's so fascinating that Slade is just... That close to a gun. (laughs) Well, the moment he hears a dog barking... He's leapt out of bed with a gun and runs outside. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's just, I mean, maybe that's just how you had to have, you had to be ready for things yeah, back I in guess. those days. Because this is, this it's is the supposed point of the dogs too. To, yeah. Because this is supposed to be like what, in the, in the twenties? Something like that. If they, if they have a, a 23 model T, assuming it's not brand new, it's probably right. late twenties. And having these old power lines. Widow Tweed hears the gunshots and races out in the night to save Todd. Todd sneaks under a woodpile, and Chief loses him, but Copper's nose is better, and he finds his friend. He offers Todd this one last chance to get away safely, and agrees to let him go, before leading Slade off in a random direction. Todd uses the distraction to escape to a nearby railroad bridge, but suddenly Chief is blocking the tracks. Both animals race along the bridge when a train whistle blows. The animals can't clear the bridge in time, but somehow Todd is able to duck underneath the train, which looks impossible based on the height of the cowcatcher, but Chief is knocked clear of the bridge and bounces off jagged rocks on his way to the ground, where he was obviously intended to die before director Art Stevens chickened out. When Copper nudges Chief's body, his eyes open, which was added after the fact, and explains Copper's reaction. Chief? Oh no! No! 
because he was supposed to be dead here, and they yeah. didn't change the voice acting. Well, I figured it was the fake out after they, you know, they reveal that he's not yeah. dead. Copper looks up at Todd on the bridge and promises to avenge his fallen friend. We cut to the widow Tweed wandering the woods with a lantern when Todd finds her. Back on Slade's farm, Copper is still blaming himself for what happened to Chief because clearly the characters were never meant to appear together again. Slade marches out of the cabin with a gun and Dinky wakes Big Mama to get her attention. Slade heads to the widow Tweed's place and demands to be let in to kill her fox, mentioning specifically that he almost killed Chief, which is the first confirmation we got that Chief has survived this accident. Tweed slams the door in his face. That fox of yours almost killed Chief, and I'm gonna get him. You can't keep him locked up forever! Tweed realizes he's right, and makes plans to deliver Todd to a game reserve. On the way, she recites a poem to music in her head about all the good times they had, but at the end, she abandons Todd in a safe section of the woods and waves him back when he tries to follow her home. It begins to rain on Todd, but he's never been outdoors alone for this weather and doesn't know where to go. A hedgehog watches him from a hollow tree. Todd finds a burrow, but a flash of lightning reveals it's loaded with raccoons. Then he finds another safe place, but it's home to an angry badger who shoes him away. The hedgehog invites Todd up to his tree. Slade watches as Tweed returns home without Todd and deduces what happened. She dropped that fox off in the game preserve. We'll get him. We'll get him. When Slade heads inside, we see a short clip of Chief with a big leg cast resting up by the fire. He tries to wander into the living room to see what Slade and Copper are up to, but Slade basically reminds him that he only exists as a pickup and can't be seen alongside the other characters who were intended <laughs> to survive the film. <laughs> Slade shows Copper how leg traps work by cracking one shut on a twig, which it snaps in two. The next day, Big Mama flies around the reserve looking for Todd, but mistakenly shouts to a female fox named Vixie. When Vixie learns there's a male fox in the woods, about her age, she is intrigued. <laughs> Vixie's thirst is real. Yeah. What she says, oh, he's handsome. It's like, oh, handsome, you say? <laughs> she's, she's interested before that, even. Handsome? Oh, say, gee, uh, he sure sounds nice. Um, um, I'm not doing anything. I, I'll help you find him. Todd wakes in the tree with a startle and falls to the ground below, disturbing the badger's home again. Big Mama and Vixie see him getting chewed out by the badger and make plans to cheer him up. Big Mama tells Vixie exactly where to stand and then points Todd in her direction. The two foxes are quickly enamored with each other. Vixie asks Todd to help her catch a fish in a nearby pond, but his lack of experience shows and he catches a stick in place of a fish, inciting laughter from Vixie, Boomer, and Dinky. <laughs> You're the funniest thing I ever saw. Todd is offended and calls Vixie dumb just for laughing at him. <laughs> Let's just accept that we made a mistake and get over it. I find I find Vixie very relatable here. Yeah. With an incompetent partner. Yeah. <laughs> Do I have a stick in my mouth again? <laughs> Big Mama explains that he shouldn't be awful to his perfect match and potentially the only other fox in these woods. As she sings a song about their natural attractions... Todd collects a flower to gift to Vixie. Vixie forgives him, and the birds give the foxes some privacy. Vixie offers Todd a tour of the local woods. They pause to allow a family of quail to cross their path, and Vixie counts the babies, a total of seven. Seven? <laughs> oh, I think six would be just right. 
At first, I thought she meant she was going to do Mama Quail a favor and eat one of her babies. <laughs> <laughs> but then it becomes clear that she's already planning her own family with Todd. And she'll feed him one of these quails. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. The next morning, we see Slade cutting the barbed wire fence around the reserve under a sign that reads, No Hunting, when he sicks Copper on Todd's trail. I can't imagine Copper going along with this unless Todd had deliberately killed Chief. So the decision to revive the dog really does ruin the movie. It totally yeah. does. Copper settles on a patch of scent and Slade preps traps in the area. Later, we see Todd and Vixie wandering through the woods, but Vixie warns Todd against a suspiciously quiet path. He moves on ahead without her, narrowly avoiding Slade's traps by complete coincidence. But when Slade hops out with his shotgun, Todd is accidentally setting traps off all over the place in his retreat, but luckily none of them catch him. Copper is right on his trail. Todd leads Vixie to their burrow before leading Copper and Slade away from it. The dog and fox are quickly baring their teeth at each other and biting hard. Todd joins Vixie in the burrow, but they find both exits blocked, but Slade starts a fire at one end to force fire through the hole to smoke them out. He waits with Copper by the other entrance, assuming they will leave opposite the flames, but Todd and Vixie barrel through the fireside to escape. Apparently this sequence involved CGI in some way, and this was the first Disney animated film to do so, but I can't pick out which part of this fire would require a computer. They scamper to a large dead tree, which has fallen over forming a bridge over a waterfall. Copper tries to track them, but is distracted by a new smell, and an enormous bear emerges. In the film, it appears to be solid black, but based on his height, towering over Slade, it is more likely a grizzly bear. As Slade backs away from the beast, he drops his gun and steps into one of his own traps. What's the, the phrase is, if it's black, fight back. If it's brown go to town stand down oh. and if it's white then sit tight and get eaten by a polar bear i don't know what the third part is because polar I, I, bears I, are the worst ones to I, find I, I always heard it as uh you climb up a tree if it falls up the tree it's a black bear if it knocks a tree down it's a grizzly bear oh okay <laughs> and if there's a polar bear then what fucking tree are you on <laughs> you're, you're, you are it's, on you are on the island of lost <laughs> yeah is this tree made out of concrete did you break into a zoo at night Copper comes to Slade's rescue, tangling with the bear, but when even Copper is bested, Todd joins the fight to rescue his friend, lured to the fray by Copper's pathetic whimpering. The bear snarls here are actually reused animal sounds, previously used for Shere Khan in The Jungle Book and the crocodiles in The Rescuers. A portion of Copper's growls were actually reused from 1957's Old Yeller when the titular dog faces off against a wolf. Just as the bear closes in on Copper, Todd gets the bear by the ear and then lures it to the top of the waterfall. They attempt to cross the log bridge together, but it collapses under their combined weight and they plummet to the river below. Slade waits at the riverbank for Todd to float up along shore and then levels his shotgun at the exhausted fox. Copper gets between the gun and the fox and repeatedly refuses to move. It finally occurs to Slade that this fox has just saved his life and the life of his dog and that Chief's accident may have been just that, an accident. Turns out, Slade has a heart, and they retreat, allowing Todd to live out his life here in the woods with Fixie. We cut to Big Mama's tree, from which she watches Boomer and Dinky finally break into the caterpillar's home, but Squeaks emerges with beautiful butterfly wings. They've taken too long to eat their friend. <laughs> Over on Slade's porch, Widow Tweed is wrapping Slade's foot in bandages. We get our only new shot of Chief and Copper together sitting at the barrels, mocking their owner for complaining so much as they nod off for a nap. We hear the childhood promise of Copper and Todd to be best friends forever, 
echoing in Copper's dreams. We'll always be friends forever, won't we? Yeah, forever. As the camera backs away from Slade's farm, we see Todd and Vixie on a cliff overlooking the valley and nuzzling each other in silhouette. The end. No closing credits because this was the last Disney animated film to cover all the credits at the start of the film, but moving forward they will be at the end. Our children were also very confused by this. That it just said the end and it was over? No, that they they had to sit through so many credits at the beginning. They've watched Dumbo 750 million times. Yeah, but Addie literally said, she's like, is this the end? I'm like, no, it's just starting. The credits are just at the front of it. Book changes. In the book, Copper is the old dog and Chief is the pup and Copper is much more antagonistic toward his perceived replacement. The bear fight actually happens at the start, with Chief saving the owner, named Only Master, and becoming the favorite of a pack of hunting dogs. Todd is raised by a different hunter, specifically the one who killed his mother, but is dumped in the wild when he reaches sexual maturity. Todd finds Master's farm and teases the chained-up hunting dogs until Chief breaks loose and chases Todd, to nearby railroad tracks where Todd intentionally lures Chief in front of a train. Oh, oh, man. The young dog Chief and Fox are never friends and Chief is killed. Master is devastated by the loss of his favorite pup and spends several years hunting Todd with Copper. Todd is wily and learns to avoid capture, even settling down with a family. But one day, Master finds their litter and gasses them to death <sighs> before trapping and killing Todd's mate. The following spring, Todd finds a new mate and has a second litter of kits, but Master finds them too and kills them all again. Jesus. Copper, still seeking revenge for the death of a dog that he didn't even like, chases Todd through the woods until the fox literally dies of exhaustion. All the years spent hunting and drinking in the woods forced Master to check into a nursing home, but it doesn't allow dogs, so he takes Copper outside and shoots him. Oh my god, and the everybody end. read this book and they're like, you know what? <laughs> exactly. Great yeah. Disney movie, yeah. let's do I, this one. I picture Wooly Reatherman <laughs> setting the book down on his nightstand and he's like, I'm going to call Walt first thing in the morning. What the hell? We got to get the option on this. In the direct-to-video sequel, young Todd and Copper stumble upon a fairground with a performance by a band of singing dogs. Turmoil within the band of canines causes their lead singer Dixie to quit the group but Copper is able to jump in and take her place on stage. Todd feels abandoned and spends most of the film with former lead singer Dixie, who sympathizes. Together, they scheme to get Copper kicked out of the band so that Dixie can rejoin before an upcoming performance in front of a scout from the Grand Ole Opry. What? The voices of the band's lead singers are provided by Patrick Swayze and Reba McIntyre. <laughs> I don't understand. Like, this, this movie... There like are humans involved in this whole process they have a human who brings the dogs on stage and says look the wonderful singing dogs and the dogs are just roo roo rooing but when you zoom into the dog perspective they're actually singing lyrics that's so weird it's very weird that's like it doesn't match the concept of the first one or the tone yeah or the tone i mean this this whole movie is about racism like and no part of that even touches the second film it didn't occur to me until this rewatch that it might even specifically be like racism on the part of police, but I cannot find that interpretation anywhere else. But it seems weird to me that the two dogs that are chasing the fox the whole time are named Chief and Copper. Yeah. Which are two things you would call a police officer. But uh, apparently it's just about racism and it's not specifically about institutionalized racism of police departments. Yeah. But, uh, for some reason that 
evaded me this whole time. I thought it was just like a star-crossed lovers type, but with friends, you know, mm-hmm. like a Romeo Juliet story. But yeah, that's uh, that's the Fox and the Hound from Disney. Ne- never one of my favorites at no. all. I mean, it was definitely one that I, I had a copy of it. We rarely watched it. <laughs> yeah, and this uh, obviously the transition mid-film to all the young animators made a huge impression on the studio and this began the revolution of the what they call the Disney Renaissance. Yeah, maybe it, it triggered it. it yeah, it, it I was wasn't say, part this of is it. not part of it. <laughs> yeah. And it was followed by the Black Cauldron which was also very not well received yeah. but had been in production for a long time. I've literally never seen that one. I, feel I like it's either. one of the only ones I yeah. haven't seen. It's it's different. <laughs> It's 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 very dark. Like Disney had this dark phase. Like we're gonna get to Watcher in the Woods later. Yeah. But it's just like they were. It's like maybe we maybe we need to go darker to to get away from. Yeah, this, but honestly, like, like on this one, I don't think they went dark enough. Yeah, they yeah. they really did mess it up by not killing Chief. Like I mean, I get that they took a lot of the other stuff out of the book because you know that was a good choice <laughs> not to put in this film. Yeah. But I don't understand like losing the thing that would cause the disintegration of their friendship. What's weirder is that chief very clearly died in a draft that was finished enough that they animated chief dying. Mm -hmm. And then they went back and animated over the top of it to open his eyes. Like you, you had already decided that chief dies and already animated that part. And then you had to go back and change it to ruin it. Where in, in lady and the tramp, it makes sense to bring Trusty back because it's just a sad thing and it doesn't right. affect the story moving forward. Right. No, I agree that that, that Lady and the Tramp is fine that they, that he didn't die. But this one, it is integral that he right. does because it's the only reason that that they really can't be friends. Yeah. It's like if at the end of Princess and the Frog they were like, oh, there's two stars in the sky now. And he's like, that's weird because I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> Credits. I don't know. I... I, I see that killing Chief would have made a much more impactful moment, but I also feel like this movie opens up pretty rough. Yeah. I mean, um, watching it with the kids, I was glad that he didn't die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's as like, an adult, it ruins the story. Like, Bambi's mom's death comes late into the movie. Yeah. Like, not late, but like mid-movie. And Which I didn't remember, by the way. I feel like I recently rewatched that movie with the kids, and I'm like, it's like the first scene in the movie. That's right? what I thought. And yeah. And then I'm like, I'm like 45 minutes in, and it didn't yeah. happen yet. <laughs> yeah. Th- this movie goes, let's get the Bambi moment over with right now, and have it happen off camera enough that kids don't really get it that it happened. They heard yeah. a gunshot, but they don't know for sure that she's dead. Well, um, I knew that that happened in this movie, and I was terrified to watch this with them. I'm like, oh, okay, we, we, we kind of glossed over But it, it. was obscured <laughs> enough that they, yeah, at the end of the movie, they were like, well, it's a good thing that nobody died. And we're like, well, what about Todd's mother? And they were like, oh, yeah, I guess she did die. <laughs> <laughs> but I was fine with Chief being alive. I I, I, I think it's, <laughs> it's, pretty, it's a pretty intense thing to survive, getting hit by a train, falling off a bridge, and, then and hitting like, a rock at the yeah. bottom. Yeah, I was like, he's just got a broken leg, and that's it. I was like, this is a miracle, dog. All right. Um, I you mean, need to send his dog to a lab. I mean, you don't see the impact of the train. <laughs> Not that kind of a lab. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he landed on another dog. <laughs> um, you don't see the impact of the train, and and the Slade is yelling, "Jump!" as if 
potentially that's something that he could have done to avoid the train. Yeah, yeah like I don't. He, yeah, I never presumed he got actually hit. I, I thought assumed, he did for I sure. I assumed he just jumped out of the way, or that the cow the cow catcher down. scooped him off, maybe. Yeah. yeah. But it, the part specifically where Todd and Copper face off, and it's like Todd gave up. Todd was in a different place, mm-hmm. starting a family on his own, and Copper came there to attack him, and they're baring their teeth at each other. It's like. If he's not doing this to avenge someone who he cared a lot about that yeah. died, then this is just a really fucked up thing for Copper to suddenly be doing. Yeah. I get that he's been a hunter for a season, but we didn't even see him kill a single animal while he was out there. He scared some birds in the sky and Slade shot well, them. Well, I mean, we saw him come back with a giant right. truck bed. But we should have seen him maul a fox to death. Sure. If we're going to show him suddenly have that switch flipped where he's going to kill his best friend for no reason. Yeah. His friend took his advice and left. I mean, he kind of did it by force, but he wasn't in town anymore. And you guys pursued him and tried to kill him. Yeah. Not that Copper can read signs and knows that he's in a game reserve or anything. But also, also even even if Chief did die, how could you blame this really on Todd? Like, right. To getting hit by a train while in pursuit of Todd. Yeah. Well, I mean, because if Todd never existed, he wouldn't have gotten hit. It's like, okay. I think well, it was more him blaming himself that he let yeah, Todd that's, go. That's how I Because if he it, didn't yeah. let Todd go, then it wouldn't have happened. Exactly. And so he was like, if I just turn Todd in. But that's not Todd's fault. Right. No. And but, would you be any less sad if Todd were shot he, and killed in front of you than if now, Chief got hurt slightly? Now it's his time to do his job. Because mm. his owner is like, find this fox. And you're like, I can't not do my job anymore because the last time I didn't do my job, killed my best friend. But the weird, the other weird thing about friend. the ending is that it seems like they're implying that Widow Tweed and Slade are going to form a new family. They're, they're going to live together. Or at least uh. they're friendly enough that they're taking care of each other and hanging out at the same house right now. And you could just as easily have been like, okay, well now we're friendly with the fox and he doesn't have to go to the game reserve because... We know Todd and we know Vixie and they have free reign here, but yeah. they don't. They're clearly kept separate from the rest of the happy right. ending family at the end of the movie. They're still just like, don't fucking come off of that cliff or we'll shoot you. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I feel like the, that there is a guarded sense of like, yeah, we're, we're nearby, but we're not, Yeah, we don't get to, you know, they're not like a uh, big mama. Yeah, like, if they wanted to go full Disney like today, what they yeah. would do is Slade would sell all of his furs and buy a second cow and be like, we're just going to sell milk now. Mm-hmm. We're not going to kill animals anymore. And then just have a giant pile of living foxes at the end. 101 foxes. Foxmations. <laughs> what? <laughs> what are we doing? Thumbs up, thumbs down? It's uh, a thumbs up for me. I'm still giving it a thumbs up for nostalgic purposes only because... I watched this movie a lot as a kid, and uh, my parents used to put us to sleep listening to the audio cassette of the story that had the voices from the film and everything. Mm. I mean, I'm not nearly as attached to this one as as I think you guys are, but um, I mean, I guess I would tell somebody to watch it because I did tell my children to watch it, so I guess it's a thumbs up. I mean, the animation's not terrible. No, it's it's fine. Yeah, it's just some story problems. Um, what about Letterboxd? What are we thinking? I don't have it particularly high because I found it... It's it's pretty boring, honestly. Like, not a lot happens in the entire film. Like, it, it's just... It's it's a really simple story and it's not, not super interesting. 
Um, I have it at 41. I have it below. And it's out of 90 now? Yeah, I have it 41 out of 90. I have it below on the right track and above Bust and Loose. Okay. Uh, I have it at 21, uh, below Outland and above Cannonball Run. Because uh, I, I I had not seen this movie probably since I was a child because I recalled it being very boring and was just like... And you were right. Yeah. It was, <laughs> and darker than I feel like watching on any given day. Yeah, like I was like... This, this is like one of those Disney movies that I don't watch because like and the, it, another one of those is, is Lady and the Tramp. Yeah, I don't I don't watch Lady and the Tramp. I watch Lady and the Tramp. Lady more. and the Tramp is far better than it, this. I, I agree, Lady and the Tramp is better, but it's really boring <laughs> and nothing. I, the music I, I is so know. much better. Too. I I think that Lady and the Tramp is leaps and bounds over this movie. Uh, I, I disagree, but I I lump them together with movie Disney movies. You that, just hate dogs. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, no, I like this movie. So I, no, Maria, I like foxes. No, I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, you like Big Mama. <laughs> <laughs> I did like Big Mama. Um, Not enough Big Mama and Lady on the Tramp. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, this movie got me choked up in just the beginning. Sure, just, yeah. Ju- just that, that really simple, very little dialogue of, of, of introducing these characters. And I, I, I enjoyed it this around. Will I watch it again anytime soon? Literally Probably no. not. I probably <laughs> won't watch it again for another 20 years. Yeah. Why will you watch it again in 20 years? I'm curious. Uh, when we're doing the reboot of this podcast. What? <laughs> yeah. reboot. You think we're going to oh be done God. with this in 20 years? Yeah, we won't even have started the 80s yet. What? Uh, but... Yeah, so uh, I have it, I have it, I have it at 21. I, I, I feel like... Like... This this you feel like you have to defend it. Yeah, I have it in between <laughs> you guys. Uh, I put it in thirty three, which is just under Clash of the Titans and just above Miss Forty Five for me. Um, I apologize in advance. The cast and crew section is going to be a little repetitive because Disney is a family. People work on things together, and also uh, this movie has more crew than cast, even just counting directors and writers. Oh god! So here we go. Director and writer Ted Berman, he wrote the animation story for Bedknobs and Broomsticks, the story for Rescuers, the story for Black Cauldron, for which he would also direct. Director Richard Rich, who I'm sure told everyone to call him Richard so that he wasn't Richie Rich. Uh, This was his first directing credit. He's back for the Black Cauldron, the Swan Princess, and then a bunch of religious stuff. Director Art Stevens previously directed The Rescuers and has a story credit on The Black Cauldron. His Disney credits date back to work as an in-between artist in 1940's Fantasia, 41's Dumbo, 42's Bambi, and 46's Song of the South. Director David Hand, earlier film clips uncredited. Um, There's two credits like that, and I think it's because it looks like they reused shots from either Bambi or Sword in the Stone in the woods Mm. where they already had things animated and they were like, let's just save ourselves the effort of this one shot. Um, But David Hand directed Bambi uh, specifically, which makes my, is where my theory came from. But I also heard someone point out um, a specific Sword in the Stone shot in this film. Director Wolfgang Reitherman, uh, Wooly Reitherman, uh, he directed sequences on Sleeping Beauty. He directed 101 Dalmatians, Sword in the Stone, The Jungle Book, The Aristocats, Robin Hood, Rescuers, and this was his last directing credit. Writer Daniel P. Mannix, that's the writer of the book, 
Uh, he's also credited for Killers of Kilimanjaro, adapted from his book African Bush Adventures. And, of course, he gets a largely irrelevant character credit on The Fox and the Hound 2. Writer Larry Clemens has a story credit on this and Jungle Book and the Aristocats, Robin Hood and Rescuers. David Michener, story credit on this, Rescuers, Great Mouse Detective, which he also directed, and Oliver and Company. Peter Young has story credits on Black Cauldron, Great Mouse Detective, and Oliver and Company. Bernie Mattinson, director credits on Mickey's Christmas Carol and the Great Mouse Detective. And writing credits, usually story, on Rescuers, Black Cauldron, Great Mouse Detective, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King, Pocahontas, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Mulan, and Tarzan. Because these films end up having 15, 20, 30 writers yeah. later in the in the Disney series. It's a big collaboration. Yeah, uh, Steve Hewlett. Story credits on Black Cauldron, Great Mouse Detective, and Oliver and Company. Earl Kress transitioned quickly to television on series like Richie Rich, Transformers, Pound Puppies, Tiny Toon Adventures, Animaniacs, and Pinky and the Brain. Vance Gary, another writer, has story credits in Jungle Book, Aristocats, Robin Hood, Rescuers, Oliver and Company, and Hercules. The music here came from Buddy Baker, who also scored Million Dollar Duck, The Apple Dumpling Gang, The Shaggy DA, and earlier for the show he scored The Devil and Max Devlin. James Coford cut Rescuers, and after this, Black Cauldron, and then like a bunch of animated religious material again. Other editor, James Melton, edited Robin Hood, The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, Rescuers, and then after this, he cuts Black Cauldron, Great Mouse Detective, Oliver and Company. Mickey Rooney is the voice of Todd. He was also the voice of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit in 1931. That's how long he's been around. He was probably the most famous and successful child actor to come from the Disney Child Actor Factory until Kurt Russell, who seems to have followed the same track. Rooney found early success nominated at 19 for Best Actor for his performance in Babes in Arms. He has almost 350 credits, and I'm not old enough to tell you which ones matter, but he's Ding Bell in Mad, 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 Mad World. He's wearing yellow face in Breakfast at Tiffany's, and he's in Pete's Dragon, etc. Kurt Russell played Copper. Jackie Cooper apparently auditioned for this role, but then asked for too much money. Russell recorded his dialogue in 1978 during the production of John Carpenter's Elvis TV movie, and the animation took long enough that Carpenter's next film was already hitting theaters alongside this. Fox and the Hound was Russell's 10th and final film for Disney until, I think, Sky High, and more recently, Guardians of the Galaxy Part Two and his only animated term. As I've mentioned before, when Walt Disney passed away at 65, he was allegedly halfway through a note to himself that said only Kurt Russell. Russell's first Disney film, Follow Me Boys, had just hit theaters a couple weeks earlier, and Walt was in the process of getting Russell a contract with the studio. Russell has said that Walt would occasionally reach out to him to get his youthful impression on various subjects. The story about his last words may be apocryphal, though, as some have stated, there's no telling how long the page with Russell's name had been on his desk, but also, in cataloging his possessions, the executors of Disney's will discovered that Kurt Russell was also the name of Disney's childhood sled. <laughs> <laughs> Pearl Bailey played Big Mama. She was Maria in Porgy and Bess, and her brother Bill Bailey invented the moonwalk dance move that was later borrowed by Michael Jackson. Isn't Bill Bailey the name of the... No, it's not Bill Bailey. It's Beetle Bailey. The comic. Oh, I was actually thinking of It's a Wonderful Life. Bill Brasky. <laughs> Jack Albertson played Amos Slade. The reference for Amos's animation was provided by director Art Stevens himself. 
We saw Albertson last year as Grandpa Joe in our Patreon review of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. He's the man from Chico and the Man. He's also Manny Rosen in the Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> and despite IMDb Trivia's claim that this was his final theatrical film, he will show up later this season in Dead and Buried. But sadly, within a year, Albertson himself was also dead and buried, passing away in late November of 1981. Sandy Duncan provided the voice of Vixie. This character in particular was animated by a young Tim Burton. The name Vixie is a clear reference to the word vixen for a female fox. Before this, Duncan had appeared as Katie Dooley in Million Dollar Duck and Amy Cooper in Star Spangled Girl. This was her first theatrical voice acting credit, as she would return to the medium for Rockadoodle and The Swan Princess. Jeanette Nolan played Widow Tweed. This part was first offered to Lillian Gish and Helen Hayes, who both turned it down. As a kid, I never questioned that it was clearly Angela Lansbury's voice, but I was wrong. She also voices Ellie Mae in The Rescuers. She plays Bertha Duncan in The Big Heat, Nora Erickson in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, but most importantly, she played the token magical homeless person, Carol, in MacGyver's Season 5 Christmas episode. Uh, I was going to say that uh, I always know her from Cloak and Dagger. Oh, yeah. Uh, because her and her husband are both in it are both in it as husband and wife and they're both in rescuers and they're both in this movie and they're both in this movie and uh and we and speaking of uh jack albertson's poseidon adventure this other co-star about another ship at the bottom of the <laughs> another sunken ship oh okay because uh goliath awaits i was gonna say is it yeah. the tv movie yeah yeah Pat Buttram did the voice of Chief. He's a longtime character actor and Western mainstay known for the constant cracking of his voice. This was his fourth and final turn in a Disney animated film after Napoleon in The Aristocats, The Sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood, and Luke in Rescuers. More recently, he's shown up as Bullet Number One in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, a saloon regular in Back to the Future 3, and as the MC at Possum Park in a Goofy movie, his final credit. John Fiedler was the porcupine. We've seen him already in Midnight Madness and the Cannonball Run, but he's best known as the voice of Piglet. He also shows up in 12 Angry Men, True Grit, and The Odd Couple. John McIntyre was the voice of the Grumpy Badger. He's Sheriff Al Chambers in Psycho. He's Rufus the Cat in Rescuers, alongside his wife, Jeanette Nolan, who also plays the Widow Tweed here. His final credit was as Amos Reed in Turner and Hooch. Richard Bacallion played Dinky. He was Loach in Chinatown. We saw him last season as Lieutenant Bombera in The Man with Bogart's Face. Paul Winchell played Boomer. His stammering woodpecker character was protested by the National Stuttering Project upon the film's home release. This was his final feature film, but he continued to work in television and direct-to-video titles until 1999. He's best known as the voice of Tigger. He was also Gargamel on a lot of Smurf stuff and Dick Dastardly on Wacky Races. He's the father of April Winchell, who is best known as Clarabelle Cow in the Mickey Mouse universe, but she's also Peg Pete on Goof Troop and Dill Pickle on Bonkers. Dill Pickle, I think, or is it Pickel? <laughs> it's Lucky Pickel. Yeah, is. so Dill Pickel replaced Lucky Pickel halfway through the season. They, like, switched out Bonkers' yeah. partner. And then there's Mar also Miranda with another partner. Right, yeah. But it's weird, uh, on Goof Troop, her the character's name is Peg Pete. Yeah. And I didn't realize that Pete is that family's last name. So Pete is the name of the father, but his full name is Pegleg Pete. And well, so his wife is Peg Pete. Right. And so, well, it's just like Goofy's last name is Goof. Yeah, but it's at least different. Yeah, but it's Goofy Goof. and Goofy Goof makes more yeah. sense to me than Pegleg Pete and Pete being his surname is weird. As, instead of Pegleg being an adjective for his first name. And his wife taking the Peg part of his first name, which is weird. But uh, And their son is presumably PJ Pete. Yeah, Pete Jr. 
Yeah. I would assume. Pete, Pete. And me, Ellen. Sorry. <laughs> Pete, Pete's brother, Pete. And, anyway. <laughs> and me, Ellen. I get it. <laughs> the Adventures of Pete and Pete. Starring Pete, his brother, Pete, and me, Ellen. Keith Coogan played young Todd. His next feature film appearance would be as Brad in The Adventures of Babysitting. Yeah. Uh, later, he's also Kenny in Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. And more recently, he played himself in the Jay and Silent Bob reboot, which was not good, I think. Corey Feldman was young copper. Feldman has said that he enjoyed working on the film, but lamented never meeting co-star Keith Coogan. We'll see him next in Friday the 13th, part four and five. He's also in Gremlins, Stand By Me, Licensed to Drive, The Burbs, Goonies, and Lost Boys for the 80s. In the 90s, he voiced Donatello in a few of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. Mel Blanc apparently voiced Squeaks. He's listed as uncredited on IMDb, and I don't remember any sounds emanating from this creature. He, uh, well, he he screams a couple times, but none of them sound sound particularly Mel Blankish. If even if they are, they they might just be stock blank sounds. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Blank is obviously better known for his contributions to the Warner Brothers stable. He was the voice of Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, and also Hanna Barbera characters Barney Rubble, Mister Spacely, and Captain Caveman. He also provides the voice of Mister McKenzie, father of Bob and Doug McKenzie, in Strange Brew, and he was hired to voice. Gideon the cat in Pinocchio, but at the last minute the decision was made that the cat should be a mute character and his dialogue was cut. So this is his only Disney credit. Uh, his only other Disney credits are reprisals of Warner Brothers characters for Who Framed Roger Rabbit because he came back to do Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck for that. James McDonald played the bear as the growling part of the voice. Uh, he was Gus in Cinderella. He's the Dormouse in Alice in Wonderland. He took over the role of Mickey Mouse from Walt Disney himself and played the part for 31 years, longer than any other Mickey, until Wayne Allwine, who finished his run with 32 years as the character. This was McDonald's second-to-last credit before showing up as another bear on Rescue Rangers in 1989, presumably as a nod to him originating the role of Chip in the original Chippendale cartoons. Clarence Nash played the bear's snarling sounds. He's the original voice of Donald Duck, dating back to 1934's The Wise Little Hen, and hung around until he was replaced by Tony Anselmo in the mid-80s. So he was Donald Duck the whole way through from 1934 to almost 1985. 50 years as Donald Duck. That's crazy. Those are all the credits I have for this one. Oh, we didn't want to, like, cover... I mean, I guess I guess we could go and do deep dives into, like, who Tim Burton is, John Lasseter, and Oh, Don I don't Bluth think we need to do Gary that. Goldman. I feel like I did that up front a little bit. Yeah. I mean, Drew Struzan was in the art department. Oh, really? Doing, doing posters. But, oh, okay. That makes sense. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just, there's just so many names uh, in this in this, in the cast, but a lot of them are uncredited. Right. Because they were just, they were literally just people working in the animation studio. Yeah. Disney uh, employed a lot yeah. of people at the time. I think that's everything for The Fox and the Hound. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, subscribe. Subscribe, please. What's that sound? That's right, it's a new patron, Emily Thelen, or Thelen? As a $5 patron of the show, Emily now has access to 26 full-size 70s reviews and 30 minisodes from 1980. Thanks so much, Emily, for making the show possible. 
And also, thank you guys for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Arthur, which IMDb describes like so. Alcoholic billionaire playboy Arthur Bach must marry a woman he does not love or he will be cut off from his $750 million fortune. But when Arthur falls in love with a poor waitress, he must decide if he wants to choose love or money. We leave you now with a trailer for Arthur. Don't you wish you were Arthur? Would the more attractive of you please step forward? <laughs> Gonna cost you $100. Let's make it $200, but I will ask you to simonize my car. <laughs> <laughs> How rich are you? I wish I had a dime for every dime I have. <laughs> Anticipating your condition, and I brought you orange juice, coffee, and aspirins, or do you need to throw up? Kiss your wife like that? I'm not married. Keep smiling. Six, eight, eight, five, five. Usually one must go to a bowling alley to meet a woman of your stature. I take it this bum will be calling you. Dad, he's a millionaire. You have my permission to marry him. <laughs> Are you a hooker? I forgot. I just thought I was doing great with you. Will you take my hand? That would leave you with one. <laughs> I'm going to take my coat. You don't have a coat. Oh, I'm going to take my time. <laughs> You're a rich one. How does it feel to have all that money? It feels great. <laughs> a dumb question. <laughs> so funny now. I sometimes just think funny things. What do you do for a living? I race cars, I play tennis, I fondle women, but I have weekends off and I am my own boss. <laughs> Dudley Moore is Arthur. Don't you wish you were me? I don't know, I do. Don't you wish you were Arthur? Arthur, the most fun money can buy. An Orion Pictures release through Warner Brothers.